Hello, friends. It's time for the second hour of Open Line with Dr. Michael Ray Unlick, Moody Radio's Bible study across America. We're talking about your questions about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life. I'm Michael Ray Dunlick, professor of Jewish studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute. We're coming to you from Moody's downtown Chicago campus. Joining me today is Eva Rydelnik, professor at Moody Bible Institute and also contributor to the Moody Bible Commentary. And joining us as well is Trisha McMillan, producer of Open Line. If you have a Bible question today, don't phone in because today is a special all mailbag, all the time edition. It is clear the spindle day, empty the inbox day, whatever you want to call it. That's what we're doing. We're answering the questions that you have mailed in. If you have a question and would like to write another question, easiest way to do that is to just go to our webpage, openlineradio.org. Scroll down. You'll see this link that says, ask Michael a question. Click on that. It'll enable you to fill out a form with your question, and we will get to it sooner or later, but we will get to it. And uh, I'm really grateful for my in-studio guests today, Trisha and Eva. I want to get right back to the questions because uh, people are, they've got their second cup of coffee, they've got their Bible out, time to talk about it. All right. First question is from Amy. Okay. She wrote us on Facebook, and she's heard that the Proverbs are not promises, for example, Proverbs 22, 6, that says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Do you agree with this, and why? Generally speaking, I I believe that the book of Proverbs teaches wisdom principles, not biblical promises. Now, it's biblical wisdom, and so as a principle, it teaches a general principle. So if you raise up a child in the way that he should go, it is a general principle that when he is old, he will return to it or will not depart from it. Uh, That's a general principle. It is not a rock-solid promise that you can claim. But I do think that, in a sense, we can say, well, this is the principle. I'm asking God to fulfill the principle in in my life. But uh, there are principles of giving and principles of business and principles of life that you can find in the Proverbs that are just general principles— and we should just see them as that, not as divine promises. Don't you agree with that, Eva? I think there are things that are absolutely true, like that they're absolutely true in in um, in promise, like how blessed is the man who finds wisdom. Absolutely mm-hmm. true. Yes. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. But to say that I've never seen the righteous begging for bread, there are some righteous people who have been in dire circumstances yeah. and begging for bread. But it's yeah. a general principle yeah. of, of, those, the, of those types. The fear of the Lord. Is always the beginning of wisdom. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But but uh, the some of these principles of life that are described, they're just wisdom principles. All right. Thank you for that question, Amy. Phyllis wrote us from South Carolina. Psalm one thirty nine sixteen says, "Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began." Is this only for Christ followers or for all people? Well, it, first, we, don't you think we need to understand what the verse actually is saying? What it's saying is God sees our bodies while still in the womb. God can see us not only as we are in the womb, even before the ultrasound can see it, God sees us. Uh, and uh, he knows us, and he knows what we will become. Uh, in your book were all written the days 
that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So what is it saying is that God sees and knows our entire earthly lifespan. And I think that that is true for believers and non-believers alike, that God knows and, and views as precious every life. Uh, and it's just talking there about earthly life. I think sometimes people say, oh, this means that all people will be saved. It's not saying that, you know, that God has determined the, the lifespan for eternity for every person. No, this is just talking about our earthly life and that God knows every person. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the great applications of this has to do with taking a pro-life position in scripture right that that this is this is not tissue it is not just a blob it's a human being from the minute of conception and you can even see those before we can see the tiny feet at about 10 weeks it's still it's still a living person yeah that's it so the your book is not the book not the book of life in your book in god's book of life uh, that's not talking about the the and God's book. It's sort of like saying, "Look, God has a whole. Your story is written. He knows exactly who you are. That you're a fully living being." But it's talking there about all the days that were ordained for me. It's the, the living days on earth. Mm-hmm. So little b, little l for Book of Life, not yeah. <laughs> not big, big, <laughs> right. big l. Yeah. That's right. The Book of Life. That's yeah. right. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. I hope that's helpful, Phyllis. Tom wrote us in West Palm Beach. West Palm Beach, Florida, listens to WRMB, 1 Timothy 2.4, as, um, about God desiring all men to be saved. Does that mean God does not make a decision about unbelievers' fate until the lake of fire judgment? <laughs> well, 1 Timothy 2.4, where it says he desires all men to be saved, uh, the, the word... Uh, uh, that's used there for for desire doesn't mean his decree. Uh, it's that God is in w- willing. He is inclined. He would like for... It's what God's wishes are, I guess I would put it, not what his will is. In other words, when he desires all men to be saved, this is what his desire is. It is not what his decree is. It is what he is willing to have happen, not his will that he has determined. That's what it's talking about. Uh, now, how are people lost and saved? This is an interesting question. People are lost because we rebel against God. God has laid out his word. When we come to an age where we understand right from wrong, what we do is we choose wrong. Uh, I have yet to meet a person who did not choose to do wrong. They have because it is our nature, we have a fallen nature inherited from Adam and Eve. We have that fallen nature, so each of us sins. And as a result of that, we're all separated from God. What election does is God chooses who will not, who will not, who will, who will come to faith, who will put their trust in Jesus. Now, Again, this is one of those great mysteries. The Bible teaches both God's sovereign election, his sovereign choice. It also teaches human responsibility that we're supposed to believe. I believe both those things. But uh, God doesn't predetermine who will be lost. He, he predetermines who will be elect. And uh, what, who, well, who determines who's lost? We do. We do that on our own. Uh, and so 
Uh, every per- it's sort of like there's this vast pool of people, everyone, and we're all lost. And then God chooses who will be saved out of that pool. It's not like this vast pool of people who are neutral, and God looks at them and says, lost, saved, lost, saved. We're all lost. He chooses out of that pool of lost people who will be saved. It's interesting, Lewis in his book, The Great C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, he, he wrestles with this from an unusual perspective where he gives people a chance to, to rethink their decision, and ultimately they stay with the original decision. And um, a, to be lost, to be yeah, to be lost, not not to not to follow God, mm-hmm. and um, and George McDonald is a character in the book, and he says that that each person in the end will either say to God, "Your will be done," or God will say to the individual who, who decided not to follow Him, "Your will be done." Yeah, it's so, yeah, yeah. It's either we say, "Your will be done" to God, or God says to us, "Your then your will be done." Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Hmm. It's a yeah, big question, but yeah. important. Yeah, um, Lorraine Rodas from Illinois listens to WMBI. She has studied Hebrew for five years at a Jewish synagogue and has been attending the Saturday Shabbat services for ten years. Um, um, there, I'm always listening to open line broadcast when I drive to the synagogue. We've had many discussion, and in a recent discussion, I told them to read Isaiah 53. They said that this chapter is about the Jewish people, not the Messiah. Um, Could that be true, that it's just about the Jewish people and not the Messiah? Ah, that's the first question? Yeah. She's got two, She's I got think. kind of multiple questions, but I think we yeah. should tackle them one by one, perhaps. Well, you know, I have to say that I, I just want to encourage anyone that has a Moody Bible commentary, get out the commentary and read the passage on Isaiah, the comments on Isaiah 53. I happen to know the author. Uh, but modesty forbids me from mentioning <laughs> who wrote those. But it but, was me. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> and I go into quite a bit of detail about that question. And I'll give you the synopsis here. First, historically, it was not viewed as a passage about Israel, about the Jewish people. But it was viewed as a passage about the servant of the Lord, the Messiah. It is only in the 11th century when a great rabbi by the name of Shlomo Yitzchaki, or also known as Rashi, uh, that he changed the interpretation because of a desire to keep Jew- The scholars scholarship ex- uh, acknowledges it was to avoid the Christological implications of Isaiah 53. So it wasn't until the Middle Ages. Yeah, 11th that century AD. Yeah, mm-hmm. that it shifted with Rashi. And now most Jewish interpreters follow him. However, before that, it was not. It was understood as Messiah. Even Rashi, when he wrote a commentary on the Talmud, the Jewish book of law, uh, there's a passage that refers to Isaiah 53 in the section about the Messiah in the Talmud. And he there says it's the Messiah. Hmm. Only later on, when he writes his commentary on Isaiah, does he shift the view? So that's the first thing. Historically, not the case. Secondly, the evidence within the text uh, is it can't be Israel because it goes on to say that he was uh, he suffered for my people, which is really kind of an interesting thing uh, because if it says that he was cut off, uh, here's what it says in verse eight uh, that he was cut off from the land of the living. He was killed for the transgression of my people. 
he was stricken. Now, if God is saying that, who's his people? He's talking about Israel. And secondly, if I think more likely the prophet is saying that he was cut off uh, for the transgression of my people, Isaiah's people, who was that? It was Israel. So what is it saying? The servant died for Israel as a substitution for Israel. So how could the servant be Israel and die for Israel? It wouldn't be much of a substitution then. And so for that reason, and there are many other internal arguments to show that this was talking about the, the Messianic king, the suffering servant, not the people of Israel. All right. Okay. All right. Her, so then she says, um, I told them Yeshua's bloodline goes back to going back to David is through his mother and father. Is this correct? They said that the bloodline for the Messiah has to go back to David through his father. And since God is his father, he could not be the Messiah. Go figure. <laughs> I want to be ready for any further discussions. So is yeah. there another resource that yeah. I can read that would help? Well, uh, the best resource I would recommend is a five-volume set, uh, which I don't remember which volume addresses these questions, but uh, it's by Michael Brown, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. It's five volumes, great books. Uh, and then uh, published by Baker. The other thing I would say about that, I, I once had this conversation with a rabbi uh, right here in Chicago just not too long ago, and I said to him, all that the Bible requires is that the Messiah come from the line of David, and it doesn't specify mother or father. But the kingly line certainly had to come through the father, and because the Lord Jesus was adopted by Joseph, who was from the the line, the royal line, he could be the Messiah. And they said, this rabbi said, no, that's not true according to Jewish law. So I pulled out my iPad and found the, the rabbinic law that showed that, that, yes, indeed, everything that a father has is transmitted to his adopted son. Mm. And so uh, even according to Jewish law about this case. We're going to be back with more of your questions right here on Open Line. My name is Michael Radelnik. Joining me, Eva Radelnik and Trisha McMillan. Be right back. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says Paul has written some things that are hard to understand. That's why Alan Johnson's book, Romans, Everyday Bible Commentary, is so helpful. It provides clear explanations that will enhance our understanding of this important letter, and it offers practical application for our own lives, too. When you give a gift of any size to OpenLine, I'll send you a copy of Romans, Everyday Bible Commentary, just to say thank you. Call 888-644-7122 or visit OpenLineRadio.org. Welcome back to Open Line. I'm Michael Rydelnik. So glad that you have joined me this morning. Joining me today as well as Trisha McMillan, producer of Open Line, and also Eva Rydelnik, who is a professor at Moody Bible Institute and is also in the text the answers to your questions on a regular basis, but she is here to answer them directly. And we're going to go right back to uh, the mailbag that Trisha has put together. So what do we got, Tricia? Cliff wrote us on Facebook and wanted to know what makes Jesus as God and what did he do to make himself as God? Well, uh, that, that's, I, kind, that's kind of a funny question. Yeah, don't you think? I, I think he doesn't understand much about Jesus. Yeah, I'm the, not sure. The, but maybe we can help Cliff. Let's, let's start, Cliff, with some basic theology. Jesus did not become God. God became a man. So that's... That's the way to look at it. I mentioned in the first hour a really wonderful passage. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word 
was God. So the living word was forever existing. God the Son existed forever. But then it says in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the eternal word of God, the living word, God the Son became a man. That's what that's saying. And uh, just really quickly, when we look at the book of Colossians, it says that he is the image of the invisible God. That's chapter 1, verse 15. The firstborn, now a lot of people think firstborn means the one that was born first, but the word firstborn has a special meaning. It means the preeminent one, the one overall, the preeminent one over all creation. And then So it's really clear that he is the preeminent one over the creation. It says, by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is a really clear statement of the deity of the Messiah. He has always been and always, uh, always has been, always will be, fully God. And then it says in chapter 2, verse 9 of Colossians, for in the Messiah, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. So he is fully God and fully man. He didn't become God. He always was God. But God did become a man in the incarnation. He was always God the Son, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this divine this deity, full, this one God who is existing forever in three persons, uh, God the Son became a man at the Incarnation, which we start to celebrate next month. And it was understood by his original audience that this is what he was talking about, as we see it recorded in the Gospel of John when the, some of his contemporaries were talking to him, and he said, before Abraham was, I am. He identified himself with the I am. The eternal one. The eternal one. And they were pretty upset about that. Yeah. So they, he, it was even understood. It wasn't like an idea that came along later. Yeah. It was in right from pa- the beginning. Other passages in John where he declares his deity, like when he says, I and the Father are one, what do they do? They pick up stones to stone him because they think he's committed blasphemy. So he is declaring his eternality and his deity. And the name, speaking of Christmas, and the cards to come, Emmanuel, God with, with us. us. Yes. So that's what I would say. The, the, the difference is not that Jesus became God. That's sort of adoptionistic uh, error that has been rejected for two millennia. But rather, it is uh, that God became a man. All right. Thank you for that answer. Marge wrote us in Indiana, listens WPFR. John 639 says, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Some other modern translations also have it, that should raise it up at the last day. But others mention them. Um, why the difference and what is it? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a uh, pronoun, and it is a neuter pronoun in Greek. Greek has male, female, and neuter. Like neutral. Uh, uh, genders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a neuter gender, masculine, feminine, and neuter are the three genders. And this is a third person plural neuter pronoun. Third-person, plural, neuter pronoun. They say, well, that's why 
some want to emphasize the, the neuter aspect, so they translate it, it. However, in the plural form, only in the plural, the neuter can refer to people, male and female, together. That's why it uses the neuter. So the best translation would be, of all that he has given me, I lose not one of them, talking about people. Even though it uses a neuter uh, a gender there, it's because it's plural, it, it encompasses both male and female, so all people. So this is all people is yeah. what this is referring yeah, all, to. Uh, well, not all people, uh, all believers. Okay. It says, of all that he has given me, uh, I will not lose any of them, not one of them. Okay. So that's the idea. Uh, so the, the plural neuter pronoun can apply to people when it's used in the plural. Okay. And would this be, she, she asks also about... She's read this as a proof text for once saved, always saved. Is this is this well, first an appropriate of all, usage? Once saved, always saved is always. Uh, I don't. I don't like how that sounds. Okay. Because uh, it sounds a little bit disparaging. A little adversarial. Yeah, like once saved, always saved. Like what kind of stupid idea is that? Uh, I don't think she means it that way. But that's how it's often presented. And I think what better to talk about the the security of the believer. Uh, some people call it perseverance of the saints. I call it the perseverance of the Savior. What this means, that Jesus will hang on to us till the very end. Even if we fail him, he won't fail us. And uh, he will hang on to us. And in fact, this passage, I, it's my favorite passage about the security of the believer. Because there Jesus says, I have always come to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose not one of them. And... What he is saying is, if I could lose one of you, I'm not doing the will of the Father, and then I'm not who I claim to be. He stakes his entire identity on the fact that he can keeps, keep me and Eva and you, Tricia, and every one of us who knows him secure. Hmm. That's a powerful. Yep. Um, thank you for that question, Marge. I hope that was helpful for you and your, um, your Bible study group. Um, Arthur wrote us from South Florida, listens to WRMB. Do we know for sure that the author of the book of James is the half-brother of Jesus, and likewise the author of Jude? No, because I looked in Eva's Bible, and it doesn't say, <laughs> uh, it doesn't say in the text, James, the brother of Jesus, or Jude, the brother of Jesus. Uh, what we have is tradition. One of the things we know is that that Jesus did have a brother named James. James. Actually, he didn't have a brother named James. Brother named Jacob. That's right. And uh, in, which is the same as James. Yeah. In Greek, it's, even in the book of James or in the Acts 15, where James is mentioned, it's Jacobus, Jacob. Go ahead and confuse us all. But really? <laughs> okay. okay. And, so, do you want to know why so, he's translated James? Yes. Because there is a king at the time of the King James version by the name of James. And so to throw him sort of a little bit of a... Little, bit of, little honor. A little honor. They took the name Jacob in the New Testament for the apostle James, the disciple, and named him James, when in fact it was Jacob. So any really any place you read James so in the James. New Testament, it's, it's really Jacob. Jacob. Yeah. Okay. How, how so. about that, huh? And so James and John, Sons of Thunder. It's is Jacob, and, Jacob John. and John. Okay. Sounds... James is a Scottish name. Jacob is a Hebrew name. Okay. Makes sense, doesn't okay. it? All right. All right. Yeah. Okay, but. So that's covered. So we, we only have the tradition. 
But we do know that that Jesus had a had a brother named James or a half brother, as it says in Matthew, um, for example, uh, thirteen fifty five. His mother Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simeon and Judah. Mm-hmm. So he did have a brother by that name. And yeah. would Judah be Jude? Judah, yeah. Okay, okay. So here's the thing: it's just by tradition that we identify them as. Uh, the the brothers of the Lord Jesus. I think more clearly the book of James. It, when you look at the book of James or the book of Jacob, as it should be called, it's very Jewish in its mindset. And it's written, when you, when you look at the beginning, he writes to the Jewish people scattered abroad. Uh, the, the dispersion, for example, it says, uh, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So he's writing to particularly to Jewish believers. And also, he talks about when someone comes into your synagogue. It says, I think in most versions, into your assembly. But it's the word synagogue. And so this is a writer with a very, very Jewish mindset. Uh, and he talks about their congregations as synagogues. Well, that makes sense to me because James, in the book of Acts, the brother of the Lord Jesus, is the leader... He, He's the leader of the Messianic synagogue in Jerusalem. He's the leader of the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. After Peter goes off in Acts 12, he becomes the leader. So it makes sense to me. It fits that this would be the James that we see in the book of Acts. And in Galatians chapter 1, verse, verse 19, it talks about how Paul went and he didn't see anyone else of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Yeah, so that's... It kind of links in that way. Anyway, we're going to be back with more of your questions in just a moment, right here on Open Line with Michael Ray Delnick. We're so glad that FEBC partners with Open Line with Dr. Michael Ray Delnick, bringing the FEBC mailbag every week. Learn how Far East Broadcasting Company is taking Christ to the world at febc.org. On their weekly podcast, Until All I've Heard with Ed Cannon, You'll hear stories of lives changed by Messiah all across the globe. Again, you can hear the podcast when you visit febc.org. That's febc.org. Welcome back to Open Line. My name is Michael Rydelnik. Trisha McMillan, producer of Open Line, is joining me today for this all-mailbag, all-the-time program. She's compiled the mailbag, helping me answer those questions you've sent in, is Eva Rydelnik, my colleague at Moody, uh, fellow contributor to the Moody Bible Commentary, and uh, my best friend and wife for lo these many years. Uh, actually, we've been married... At least 10. At least 10 years, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. So, yeah, at least 10, something like that. Maybe a little bit more. Okay. All right. Quick follow-up on that previous question from Arthur about um, James being the half-brother of Jesus and also Jude. Mm -hmm. Did you have any, is there any evidence, biblical evidence about Jude being the half-brother of Jesus? What I was trying to say before about James, just Mm -hmm. to clear, clarify, is there's nothing but tradition that says it was James, the brother of Lord Jesus, except that he had a brother named James, and also that the James in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, who is the brother of the Lord, was so Jewish-oriented, then you see the the book of James, it's so Jewish-oriented, that likely, yes, he is that same James. And then you go to Jude 1, and it says, James, a servant of Jesus the Messiah, and a brother of James. Jude. Jude Jude says he's a brother of James. Jude, a servant of Jesus the Messiah, and a brother of James. Well, what is that? It seems to identify him with James. Now, others say, well, if he were 
the brother of the Lord Jesus. Why wouldn't he say the brother of the Lord Jesus? But the Lord Jesus had been resurrected and ascended by this point, and he is linking his authority to the authority of James, this key apostle. And okay. that's, that's why he mentions James at this point. It's a fairly late book, somewhere between 70 and 80. So okay. that's why. All right. Thanks for that question, Arthur. Betsy wrote us from Ohio, listens to WCRF. 2 Corinthians 8.15 references Exodus 16 and the gathering of manna in the desert. Um, I'll read this. Okay. <laughs> um, it says, The person who gathered much did not have too much, and the person who gathered little did not have too little, um, is the mm-hmm. verse, the specific verse, without any context. Um, this almost sounds like an endorsement for socialism. Uh, is it? <laughs> Is that the only verse they can come up with? That's all That's all that that's, she mentions. Well, uh, that verse is saying about how God provided for all the people in the wilderness. Uh, socialism is something that's quite different. Socialism is the government redistributing wealth. Right. And I think when you look at what what's happening here in 2 Corinthians, it's talking about the believers. If you have stuff to share, share it. For this is not the case with others and for your uh, affliction, but by way of equality, at this present time, your abundance being to supply for their need so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need that there may be equality. Meaning, if you have something that your brother needs, share with him. And later on, if he has something you need, he'll share with you. Yeah. What, What that's saying is it's dealing with generosity and free will giving. Socialism is saying that the government redistributes wealth so that everyone in society is equal. That's different than people being generous with those who are needy. That, there's a really big difference. And you know, one of the passages that people often use for socialism is found in the book of Acts where it says that people had things in common you know, they would go house mm-hmm, to house mm-hmm. uh, and they would selling. It says in uh, verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave anyone as he had need. Uh, and so the idea there is they're sharing. They're doing exactly what Second Corinthians 8 is talking about, sharing with those who are needy so those who had could share with those. And so it had to do with personal generosity. And it is not mandated. It is not governmental. It is not socialism. Uh, which, again, would be government tra- uh, uh, redistribution. redistribution of funds. And then you come to Acts 5, uh, one of my favorite passages about socialism. Because you remember there Ananias and Sapphira lied. What they did is they kept back part of the money for themselves, right? And they brought it all to the feet of the apostles and said, here's all the money that yeah. we got for the for the, the field they sold. Yeah, yeah, the property we sold. And so Peter said in verse 3, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? The problem here is not that they kept back the money, but they lied about it. They said they're giving it all, but they kept back some of it. Then he says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? In other words, Ananias, that money was yours. No one was taking it from you. The problem you have is you wanted to have the honor of giving it all, but you didn't really want to give it all. And so you lied about it. 
what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. And so what I like about this verse when it comes to socialism, it's, it's saying it's not mandated. It's, again, as long as the property belonged to you, it belonged to you. When you sold the property, the money belonged to you. You didn't have to give it up at all. In fact, Ananias, if you had given up the part of it and said, I'm giving you part of what I sold, that would have been fine too. What the problem was that he lied about it. And so, but the verse there underlies the idea that it's generosity that God is looking for, not government redistribution. All right. Hope that's helpful for you, Betsy. Our next question is um, kind of diving into some Bible study things. Uh, Ron in Indiana says, Michael, I'd like to know what study Bibles you feel would best reflect the backstory, insights, understanding, or tidbits that you give on Open Line. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, he wants you to write your own, and that would be sufficient. But several well-known preachers have made study Bibles, and I wear some of the older ones, but I'd like your assessment since you probably have examined many more than me. Or maybe there are some great standalone books that would give some of this backstory. Wow. Uh I think Eva's got a favorite well, study Bible. Well, you know, I think what we're talking about is more like types of books that yeah. you like. You well, know? let's start with study Bibles because you do use study mm-hmm. Bibles. I, I like the ESV study Bible. It has great maps, good good backgrounds. Thorough notes. Thorough notes, right. It's yeah. set up really well. It's, it's you know, it's really huge. So I only use it on my desk. I don't carry it around with me. Yeah, it's it's like carrying so, around this. It's <laughs> almost like carrying the Moody Bible It commentary. is as big as the Moody yeah. Bible commentary. It's the not ESP. the one you put in your purse to carry. Yeah, I don't yeah. put it in my purse, right. But yeah. that has that's good That has good background. You know, enough, but. I, actually, that's a great study Bible. There's the Holman study Bible that I contributed to. Mm-hmm. That's really good. good. Uh, that's very big, too. The NIV study Bible is I very good. I like that good, one, too. Very big. But it's very big. In fact, uh, one of the things, and you guys, everybody listening, you can pray about this. Uh, We are working on a proposal right now about a Moody Study Bible. I love the Ryrie Bible because it is, you can carry it. A little bit smaller. It's a little little smaller. smaller. But uh, one of the things that we're proposing is a Moody Study Bible derived from the notes in the Moody Bible Commentary. So we'll distill some of those notes. Uh, Yeah, but uh, one of our goals is we're going to make sure that it's the kind of study Bible that you can carry, uh, not one that has to be used on your desk. At home. Another small tool that I like, I think we mentioned this when we were together a while ago, is the Bible Book by Book by Coleman Luck. And it's just like a little, it's just like a little introduction to each book and a little outline, outline, keywords, and it's it's like a small paperback size. He was a professor here at Moody when I was a student many years ago. And uh, he uh, used to, I think he was from Texas, he would say things like, I wrote the Bible. Book by book, right. and I, don't, I, I used to think I don't think he means what that sounds uh, like. It's a Moody Press book, and it's it's really helpful if you just want a quick introduction. I mean, I mean, like the Moody Bible Commentary, excellent, of course, and yep. it has great introductions to all the books. But if yeah. you want the really just quick the introduction part, just the introduction part, yeah. structure part, the the Bible book by book. I think I think besides having a study Bible and an introductory book like that, uh, everyone should have a Bible dictionary. Right. I think that is a very helpful tool. Moody does a great one called the Unger's Bible Dictionary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it may be called the New Unger's Bible Dictionary. Yeah, I think it's been updated. Yeah, it's been updated. Uh, Merrill Unger was a great Bible scholar from Dallas Seminary, and he then took an older Bible commentary, and when he was a professor at DTS, he he uh, he updated it, and then now it's been updated since. It is a very, you know, you want to look up archaeology, or you want to look up some sort of background, or you want to look up a city in the Bible and all that. It's got everything in there. It is a really tremendous, helpful tool. Well, with that, D from Minnesota 
um, wanted to know if there's a book that's valuable to explain the history alongside the events of the Bible to help us understand the culture uh, and and how that happens. Would a Bible dictionary be helpful, or what kind Bible of Bible dictionary could help? But there's a, uh, in terms of the Old Testament, uh, let's see. Uh, there's a book by Leon Wood that I read many years ago. Uh, a survey of Bible history or Old Testament history or something like that. Leon Leon J Wood. Uh, that would be a good book that he's a very good scholar and and he told the story of the Bible to, to fit with the biblical narrative so you could see where it fit with secular history that we know from that time uh, and uh, th- there are uh, other books that survey the Bible the thing I liked about Leon Wood it was a good history book of the the secular history behind it I don't even know if that's even available anymore. I read that some 35 years ago, but that's that was a really good book. Uh, and, and, uh, and the, um, like the ESV study Bible, it has some historical stuff built into the, like it'll yeah. talk about when the kings reigned and and things like that that are helpful. Which is your favorite Bible dictionary, Eva? Well, I think the, I, I think the Ungers is good. I've used that since I was a student and because it was in the original edition back then, I think, yeah. when I was a Moody student. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't even and written when you were uh, Yeah, right. So, yeah. And it's been updated. It's been updated since then. But yeah. I do like it. Um, I actually use one that's much older than people can't get because it's been out of print since 1901. I like that one, but yeah, sorry. Can't get that sorry, anyway. folks. The name of the book by Leon Wood is A Survey of Israel's History. And since I read it, it's now revised and enlarged. So uh, Dr. Wood wrote it, but it's been revised by someone by the name of David O'Brien. And uh, I, that's a really great book, and it's published by Zondervan. All right. Those are some good study tools. Yeah. Any others that you would? What would be? A, what would a commentary be good for? Just a general commentary. A general commentary, like the Moody Commentary, or there are others that are good. Uh, and I don't want anyone to think that we think the Moody Bible Commentary is the only commentary. I use commentaries all the time, many of them. Uh, but uh, one volume, everyone should have at least one one volume commentary. And uh, the the reason I like the Moody Bible Commentary gives you a background. It deals with the flow of thought of the passage to passage. If there's a problem in a verse, it generally tries to answer the question that people raise. You know, obviously sometimes we failed, but mostly we, we hit it on the target that uh, what what's the question that people might have in this verse. Uh, and so in many respects, it's it's a helpful tool. I think everyone should have a Bible dictionary, a Bible like a, commentary. Maybe a small Bible handbook like Haley's Bible handbook or, or Unger's, Unger's Bible, Bible handbook, handbook, which gives you the background to each Bible book. Okay, so yeah. so that kind of gives you an over a background to each of the books that's written. Yeah. Is the that's a Bible handbook. Yeah. Bible handbook, okay. Yeah. So those those are really nice little books. I like John's book. Uh, uh, John Salhammer. Mm-hmm. It's called the NIV Compact Bible Commentary, and I think it's uh, unfortunate that it two unfortunate things. One, it's called the NIV. He used the Hebrew and the Greek. He didn't use the NIV, which I think is interesting. And in fact, sometimes he'll say the NIV is wrong here uh, in the commentary. Uh, but it's the NIV Compact Bible Commentary. And the other unfortunate thing about this book is I think it's getting going to be hard to come by fairly soon because they've they've shortened it even more. It was compact to start with, and they've shortened it more. But it was, I guess that one will be okay, too. I forget what they're calling the new version, but it's the NIV Compact Bible Commentary by John Salhammer. Great little book. All right. And I will put I will put a list of these up um, 
for Facebook. people on and, Facebook and our website. And and hit, and John Selhammer's book on the books of the Bible, just a little paperback. Oh, that's, that's one page about each book of the Bible. It's really really good. Yeah, um, uh, the books of the Bible. That's what it's called by mm-hmm, John Selhammer. Mm-hmm. He had a whole series of these little one minute books uh, that I think are great. How we got the Bible and uh, uh, the books of the Bible, but you know. John Salhammer with the Lord now, but thank God that we have these resources that he left us. So those are, those are really great tools. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I, I think is that one of the best tools we have to understanding the Bible is something called the Bible. <laughs> and I, I just, especially because the new year is coming, I really want to encourage people to read their Bibles, just to read the Bible. It is so helpful to read the scriptures uh, You've heard me talk about my friend Larry, who reads the Bible several times a year. He goes through it. He just reads every day. He is faithful. He hasn't missed reading the Bible since 1972. And you know what? When I ask him, how did he get such a vast knowledge of the Bible? He doesn't say, my time at Moody or my time at Dallas Seminary. He says, it's my time in the morning where I read the scriptures every day. That's the key to understanding the Bible, is to read the scriptures. I think that's crucial. Anyway, uh, we're going to be right back with more of these questions you've sent in with me, Michael Rydelnik, Eva Rydelnik, and Trisha McMillan. Stay with us. More questions straight ahead. The recent Hamas attack in Israel and the surge of anti-Semitism in the U.S. and around the world might cause us to wonder where God is in all this. It's crucial to remember that God loves the Jewish people and truly does have a plan for them. That's why Chosen People Ministries, an organization that brings the good news to Jewish people around the world and also partners with Moody Radio to bring you Open Line, is offering a new booklet titled God's Plan and Purposes for the Jewish People and written by Chosen People President Mitch Glazer. This booklet unpacks what the Bible has to say about God's choice of Israel and its significance. It will grow your care and concern for the Jewish people as you see God's heart for them. It's yours free. Just go to openlineradio.org, scroll down to the link that says a free gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that and you'll be taken to a page where you can sign up for your free copy of God's Plan and Purposes for the Jewish People. Go to openlineradio.org. Welcome back to this all-mailbag, all-the-time edition of Open Line. I'm Michael Rydunlich. Joining me for this program today has been Trisha McMillan, and she has skillfully managed the mailbag throughout, and Eva Rydunlich is with me as well. She has been my favorite sidekick for a long time, answering Bible questions for many, many people. And now, Trisha? All right. Catherine in Chicago listens to WMBI and wanted to know, uh, she says, a friend of mine is attending a Bible study hosted by Latter-day Saints. I'm concerned that she will be receiving incorrect doctrine, and I'm wondering if I should be concerned. Before, let me just state what we mean by the Latter-day Saints. These are lovely people who uh, are seeking God, but the problem is that they teach that the Book of Mormon, their other revelation, is a Second Testament, another testament of Jesus Christ. But the Bible is complete, and as a result, what they are teaching is deeply in error. And so uh, I would caution any believer. It's one thing to share your faith with people who are in error, but it's another. And they, they have, because of this uh, second book, this they have a deficient view of Jesus the Messiah that contradicts the New Testament, contradicts the whole Bible. So 
I would classify the, these people to be in error. And it's one thing to teach people who are in error. It's another thing to study with them. So what were you going to say, Eva? So uh, uh, the, the idea there is that I, what I was thinking about is in Colossians chapter 1, there's a warning against studying with people who are in error. And I, I would just say if, if people are in error, uh, what we do is we love them, we pray for them, we care about them, but I wouldn't study with them. Uh, it says, uh, I'm sorry, did I say, I meant Titus Tid- 1. Titus 1. Yeah, I don't, why did Colossians come out of Titus my mouth? 1 Titus 1, 10. Titus 1, 10 through 16 yeah. is the passage, I would say. You can read that, but it, it, then there were people who were teaching error, and it says, uh, therefore rebuke them sharply so that they be, will be sound in their faith and will pay no attention. And it's talking there to Jewish myths that they were teaching or commands of those who reject the truth. And so don't go study with those who are teaching something that's not true. Let's, let's talk right. about the next question. All right. Next question is from Jean on Facebook. Well, I'm aware there are angels all around us. Is there anything in Scripture to indicate that we each have our own personal guardian angel? I'm throwing that back to you. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I don't I don't think there is sufficient biblical evidence to support this. There are verses that talk about angels and how they minister to us. Um, Hebrews 1:14, they mm-hmm. act as messengers in times of spiritual need. Um, and like like you said, um, Gene, they are all around us. Um, they observe believers. There are several passages in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and 1 Peter that talk about that. Um, and in Matthew 18, 10, Jesus references angels in heaven for each little one around him. But if they're worshiping in God's presence, then they're not likely guarding the little children. Exactly. So I I don't think there's one for each person. There isn't a guardian angel, but there are angels who will minister to believers. It says in Hebrews 1, 14, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So God will send, not Clarence, but angels to minister to those of us who love and follow him. And not all the time, but when he deems fit. And it's amazing because two hours have rapidly gone away. There's still many questions and we'll try and take those up in weeks to come. But that's the program for today. As always, thank you. Tricia for producing and for putting this together and for Eva for joining me today. I so appreciate that. And also to Courtney Young for engineering all this today. Join us again next week when you can phone in with your questions about God, the Bible, and the spiritual life. Remember, keep in touch with us by going to our website, openlineradio.org. There's all sorts of good links, including a link to the Chosen People Ministries resource and a link to the Israel trip with Dr. Mark Job and me. Keep reading the Bible. We'll talk about it next week. Open Line with Dr. Michael Radonik is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.